Hi everyone, I'm Logan Williams. I'm an NEU activist, a RISE volunteer and regular Labour Outlook contributor, especially on Latin American issues. And I'd really like to welcome everyone to this event discussing Hugo Chavez, Spark, 21st Century Socialism and Latin American Liberation. Today's forum is part of the Socialist Ideas series, which is organised by Labour Outlook and hosted by Arise, a festival of left ideas. And today we're going to be looking in depth at the legacy and revolutionary achievements and ideas of Hugo Chavez, who 25 years ago was elected president of Venezuela for the very first time. And of course, later coined the phrase 21st century socialism, famously stated, I'm convinced that the path to a new, better possible world is not capitalism, the path is socialism. And although today's meeting was called some months ago, this is a really particularly relevant and timely discussion in light of the latest war we are seeing against the people of Palestine, a cause of global justice that Hugo Chavez was a great champion of, and especially as we see more and more people look towards anti-imperialist ideas, and indeed as we see the global capitalist economic crisis deepening both here in Britain and around the world, and we see people start to look towards alternatives to capitalism, it's important that we start to look at people's legacy of those who have tried to forge a better world. It's not only important for those reasons, though, it's also important for those of us who try and seek to build a firmly anti-imperialist left here in Britain to try and acknowledge and explore the legacy of that movement around the world. And to discuss this, we're today joined by some really fantastic guests who I think we're really lucky to be having. So we've got Alex Main, Director of International Policy at the Centre for Economic and Policy Research in the US, who's a witness to the 2002 coup attempt against Chavez in Venezuela and was working there until 2008. We've then got Susie Gilbert, which is who was a co-producer of the fantastic Oliver Stone's South of the Border, and our very own Matt Wilgress, who is last but certainly not least. We do want to hear from you guys as many questions and comments throughout the talk as possible. But because we've got hundreds of you joining across all of our platforms, we're going to have volunteers who are going to be facilitating that through the Q&A function in Zoom. So please both please post your comments and any questions you have to our speakers in the Q&A function down at the bottom of your screen. We're going to hopefully have time for a few rounds of questions. From the audience after the speakers so make sure we're getting some in so that we can truly really pick these brilliant minds that we're going to be hearing from so that's enough for me for now let's move on to our very first speaker alex main from cpr alex thanks logan and yeah thanks very much uh, for having me thank you to logan matt patrick everyone at arise and labor outlook for organizing this important and timely um, forum and of course everyone from the solidarity movement uh, who's joining us today logan mentioned that um, chavez was elected 25 years ago um, and he died um, of course 10 years ago in march 2013 and you know one amazing fact that gets of course very little attention in the mainstream media is that he remains in Venezuela, the most popular politician, dead or alive. Um, he has an approval rating that hovers around 
60%, really miles ahead of everybody else. And so in the short time I have, um, I just want to highlight some of the reasons for Chavez's enduring popularity in Venezuela and indeed in other parts of Latin America uh, and the world. Um, and yeah, I first realized that Chavez was not your run-of-the-mill president when I first traveled to Venezuela, which happened to be just before the 2002 military coup that briefly removed Chavez. And on the day of that coup, on April 11th, I found myself um, in front of the presidential palace uh, amidst a huge crowd of men and women who come down from the low-income neighborhoods near the palace, the barrios, um, and they were there to defend the pop palace, uh, really with nothing but clenched fists um, and the occasional stick. And we were shot at, snipers shot at the crowd uh, that I was in. They killed a dozen or so people, but no one ran off. Um, everyone remained there for hours uh, defending the palace. And of course, we know what happened after that. The coup happened anyway. Um, it had been planned in advance by, you know, the top military command that was in cahoots with Venezuela's elites um, and also the conservative private media. But then, of course, something totally unexpected happened. Masses of people uh, flooded into the streets of Caracas and other big cities uh, in opposition to the coup. We saw splits emerge within uh, the Venezuelan armed forces. And finally, Chavez was helicoptered back to the presidential palace. Um, and that was the end of the coup. And initially, this was all very hard to grasp. In Latin America, coups don't generally get reversed. Um, but in Venezuela, there was clearly something very important at stake. Um, and particularly for the people from the barrios. And it was something that they thought uh, clearly was worth defending with their lives. Um, and that something was more than Chavez. It was um, the empowerment of marginalized, uh, much maligned, low-income Venezuelans who had for decades been excluded from any meaningful political participation. And Chavez really was the leader of a popular movement that gave millions of Venezuelans an active role in public affairs that they'd never had before. And um, this occurred through various forms of participatory democracy that haven't really gotten much notice, even up until today. Um, when I first got to Venezuela in early 2002, you had a number of um, new community-based participatory democracy structures that were promoted by the government. You had urban land committees um, where communities were managing land titling, urban renewal projects. You had water committees to improve access uh, to water in poor neighborhoods. You had the Bolivarian circles, committees that were studying the new constitution of Venezuela from 1999. Um, and many of the people that were there in front of Miraflores Palace on April 11th, uh, they belonged to, you know, one or more of these structures. And in the years that followed, the Chavez administration created many more of these community-based organizing structures, um, accompanying the healthcare and educational programs, the Visiones. Uh, you had, um, of course, the community councils, which were followed by communes. These are autonomous uh, local committees 
to develop projects, manage public funds at the local level. Um, and, you know, it was really about building socialism at the grassroots level. It was about people's empowerment, poder popular. And I think this was the first key ingredient of Venezuela's Bolivarian revolution and Chavez's legacy. And the second essential ingredient was the recovery of Venezuelan sovereignty through the reassertion of um, the state's control over Venezuela's natural resources, and in particular, the oil industry, um, where years of privatization, of creeping privatization within the industry were reversed. And this is a process that started in late 2001, was only really achieved in 2004, um, after the Chavez administration overcame enormous um, national and international resistance, and of course, a coup in 2002. Um, and this control over Venezuela's resources allowed the state to ensure, one, that much more of the revenue from the oil industry would be channeled into public coffers as opposed to foreign companies and private accounts. And two, the, that a great deal of this revenue would be injected into social programs benefiting, first and foremost, low-income Venezuelans. And um, the too many programs to name, just a few. In healthcare, you had Barrio Adentro, you had Misión Milagro, um, you had educational missions like Misión Ribas, um, which achieved, you know, uh, nearly 100% literacy in Venezuela. Um, you had Misión Sucre, uh, giving access uh, uh, to higher education to millions of Venezuelans. And really, all of Venezuela thrived thanks to this recovery of sovereignty and uh, the progressive economic policies that went with it. The amount of funding that went into Venezuela's social programs increased from 11% um, at the beginning of the Chavez administration to over 22% um, in terms of Venezuela's overall economic output. So nearly a quarter of Venezuela's economic output was uh, basically the revenue was being channeled into social programs. Um, we saw economic growth during the period from 2004 until Chavez passed um, that uh, averaged over 4% per year, far higher than what Venezuela had experienced prior to that. Um, and then thanks to the redistributive um, character of these policies that were in place, inequality um, in Venezuela reached the lowest level in Latin America. Poverty was um, halved, extreme poverty was reduced by 70%. Um, we saw also enrollment in secondary schools soar. So this was absolutely essential. And then the third key ingredient, I would say, of Chavez's political project was progressive Bolivarian internationalism, which put principles of solidarity, global justice, Bolivarianism at the heart of the foreign policy of Venezuela. So solidarity... Um, in so many different um, cases, but you know, one that stands out is with Haiti, following the the U.S. and French-backed coup there in 2004, which Chavez strongly denounced, unlike other Latin American governments. And then following the 2010 earthquake 
Venezuela was the country that provided more relief and reconstruction aid than any other country, including any any of the wealthy countries. This also got very little attention. Um, of course, solidarity with Palestine. Um, and during the 2009 Gaza War, Chavez, um, you know, strongly, strongly denounced uh, what he referred to as the genocide, in where which, you know, around 1,500 Palestinians, probably more, were killed. Um, Chavez expelled uh, the Israeli ambassador. He cut off all diplomatic ties with Israel. And that year, he also officialized Venezuela's recognition of the state of Palestine. And, you know, one wonders, uh, if Chavez were around today, what would he be saying and doing now, given all the horrors taking place in Gaza? And Chavez's foreign policy also uh, very much promoted global economic and social justice. Uh, it was an activist government in a lot of multilateral fora um, that blocked the advance of the free trade area of the Americas in 2005, um, blocked pro-corporate negotiations at the World Trade Organization, um, and you know they hosted the World Social Forum and a lot of other global justice events. Um, and then, probably most significantly, Chavez's foreign policy was Bolivarian. That is, was animated by Simón Bolivar's dream of a unified and liberated Latin America. Um, and he joined uh, Fidel Castro in creating the ALBA, the um, Bolivarian Alliance uh, for the Peoples of Our Americas, a political bloc of countries focused on working to, together bringing countries together, I think there were 15 in all, to advance uh, economic justice and oppose imperialism. Um, and Chavez was also a pillar, played a really key role in the creation of UNASUR uh, in 2007-2008. That's the South American Community of Nations, which developed you know, some really important institutions of cooperation in the areas of health, infrastructure, defense, and so on. Um, and then there was, of course, Petro Caribe, which um, was developed under Chavez, a major oil distribution scheme that provided oil on uh, extremely preferential terms to a lot of the Caribbean and some Central American countries with the condition that the money that was saved um, through this scheme would be invested in socially beneficial programs to help the poor, to help small farmers, uh, to expand education and health care investment. Um, and this had a major impact in these countries, um, you know, uh, until I would say 2015, 2016. Uh, so a lot more can be said about Chavez's foreign policy. Um, we don't have time to get into all of it here. Uh, I would say Chavez united, you know, the left-wing forces of Latin America like never before. Um, and I think a lot of left-wing leaders in Latin America today, including Lula da Silva, lament not having Chavez here now to help drive forward this common regional agenda. Um, but one foreign power that uh, didn't lament Chavez's passing was, of course, the United States, where I'm currently based. Uh, and you can see thousands of State Department cables leaked by WikiLeaks that clearly attest that the U U.S. government was obsessed with countering the influence of Chavez throughout Latin America. My colleagues at CEPR and I wrote a chapter on this on the, in the WikiLeaks files, um, if ever, anyone's interested in seeing the details. Uh, one of the big motivations 
for instance, behind the U.S. support for the 2009 coup in Honduras, was that the president there who was ousted, Mel Zelaya, had brought Honduras into Alba and Petro Caribe. And that was something that the U.S. couldn't tolerate, particularly in Central America. So the U.S. did everything it could to get rid of Chavez, starting with its overt support for the 2002 coup. Um, following that coup, uh, the U.S. supported Venezuela's elites' attempts to destabilize Venezuela at every possible opportunity. Um, you know, soon after the coup, you had the U.S. supporting an oil lockout, the, the sabotaging of the country's oil industry that drove the country into a recession, a deep recession in 2003. It was, you know, the old make the economy stream strategy, um, as Nixon described it when he set out to topple Allende in Chile. And then there were the opposition's guarimbas, their violent protests in early 2004. And then the U.S. Um, supported the revocatory referendum against Chavez, which Chavez won by over 10 points. And really, despite all of the support, the political and material support that the U.S. provided to Venezuela's opposition, Chavez just kept winning election after election. And in the end, it was cancer uh, that brought him down. But only months after winning another presidential election in 2012 by an over 10-point margin. And so, as I was saying at the beginning, uh, 10 years later, Chavez remains by far the most popular political figure in Venezuela. This is very hard for many people outside of Venezuela to understand, given, given the, the prevailing uh, media discourse on Chavez, that he was dictatorial, he mismanaged the country, he was a rabble rouser, etc. And in reality, Chavez remains deeply popular to this day because he helped broaden Venezuela's democracy, create a new form of socialism. He helped bring immense dignity to those millions of marginalized Venezuelans. And, and his government invested very heavily in their future. And this social investment was a boon to all Venezuelans. And Venezuela, under Chavez, showed the rest of, region, of the region what was politically po possible. You know, Chavez managed to survive the 2002 coup and many other destabilization attempts. And, um, and as a consequence, you saw more countries, more left-wing movements follow Venezuela's examples, and um, bold, progressive governments were elected around the region. Um, but of course, the U.S. couldn't let Venezuela's brash uh, and very independent course of action go unpunished. And um, today, that punishment continues and is inflicted by the U.S. Um, in a form of collective punishment. The brutal sanctions against Venezuela's econ economy and against its people. And I would say that more than any other factor, those sanctions have battered the Venezuelan economy, leading to tens of thousands of avoidable deaths. We published a paper on this uh, back in 2019, and the situation has grown much worse since. Those sanctions, um, since I'm speaking to a British audience, I should add, have been fully supported by the UK government, um, and they've done their own bit by freezing billions of pounds of Venezuelan sovereign gold reserves. Um, you know, the sanctions um, against Venezuela have only been partly lifted by the Biden administration and continuing to do an enormous amount of damage. And so I just want to conclude by saying if there's one thing you can do today uh, to try to preserve Chavez's legacy, it's to pressure 
uh, your government, as difficult as I know that is, but to pressure them to release the gold reserves and to stop supporting the U.S.'s broad economic sanctions against Venezuela. Thank you. Thank you, Alex. That was a tour de force, I think. I think that's fair to say that that was an amazing overview there of Chavez and all of the hugely progressive things he did. Uh, We're just going to, before we move on to our next speaker, Susie, we're just going to hear very quickly uh, from Fraser, one of our Labour Outlet regular contributors, to hear a little bit more about how you can support us. It should only take a couple of minutes. And then back to the action. Fraser. That's great. Thank you, Logan. Hi, everyone. Thanks very much for joining this important event on the 25th anniversary of Chavez election victory, which is part of a Rise Festival Socialist Ideas series. My name is Fraser and I'm the Rise Festival volunteer. We're only able to hold important narrative shaping events like this because of the support of people watching. While these events are all free to watch, we do rely on donations from viewers and any amount that you can donate will go a long way toward helping us continue to hold these events into the future and the support is appreciated by all of the volunteers who work to make a rise festival happen. The link to donate is going to be posted in the chat function below. This event tonight is also being supported by Labour Outlook, an independent media outlet bringing you positive news, views and analysis from progressive movements in Britain and internationally and amplifying socialist voices. Please also consider becoming a patron of Labour Outlook with the link posted in the chat function below which will help amplify socialist voices and build international solidarity in this time of crisis. Once more, we do rely on these donations and ticket sales for events to keep running these timely educational sessions. So please do donate if you are able to, in order to help us keep hosting these important discussions for the left. Thank you. Thank you, Fraser. Okay, Susie. Hi, everyone. Um, thank you to the organizers, uh, Matt, Logan, Patrick, Fraser, everyone else involved. And thank you so much to everyone who's here. I know uh, many of you are experts on this topic yourself, and many of you do a lot of uh, work in international solidarity. So, so thank you for everything you do. Um, of course, we're having this discussion um, whilst these atrocities are going on in Gaza. And and as uh, Alex touched on, I can't help but wonder what Chavez would be doing and saying today. Some of you may have heard the Palestinian representative the other day speaking so amazingly at the UN, and I just thought, wow, Chavez Chavez would be proud. Um, So I came uh, through a a different route to Alex to, to Venezuela. I was working with the American filmmaker Oliver Stone, who had done uh, some documentary interviews with Fidel Castro. He'd done a film called Salvador, about El Salvador. And our intention when we first went to Caracas, and I believe it was either in late 2008, early 2009, was really um, to explore him as a character um, and the media's demonization of of him and and, and Venezuela. And uh, we were sort of uh, perplexed a bit because we would hear these, you know, amazing statistics about how poverty and extreme poverty was being massively reduced under Chavez's um, uh, government. Um, but then, you know, we all would hear these caricatures about him. So we went down to interview him. And I think the first time I went down was January 2009. 
And he said, you know, no, 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 don't just talk to me. This is not just about me. You've got to go and speak to the other other leaders in the region. This is just a regional movement going on and you've got to get a full picture. Um, and so that's what we did. And we ended up going to uh, Ecuador, Brazil, Paraguay, Argentina, Ecuador. I forget where else, but a bunch of places. Uh, and it became a little bit of a road trip movie, uh, an introduction to what some have called uh, the pink tide. Um, and as Alex said, you know, you wouldn't you wouldn't know this today, sort of looking back on on how some people remember him or or some some media outlets cover him. But I thought I'd read a little bit from uh, from Lula's piece in the New York Times on Chavez when he passed in March 2013. And Lula wrote about him. Uh, No remotely honest person, not even his fiercest opponent, can deny the level of camaraderie, of trust, and even of love that Mr. Chavez felt for the poor of Venezuela and for the cause of Latin American integration. Of the many power brokers and political leaders I've met in my life, few have believed so much in the unity of our continent and its diverse peoples, indigenous Indians, descendants of Europeans and Africans, recent immigrants, as he did. Um, And so I'd just like to touch briefly on that theme of unity. And as I I think Chomsky called it, the second independence of Latin America. Um, You know, while we've seen in recent years, the so-called pink tide, uh, we we remember that before then, uh, things weren't uh, didn't always uh, have that sort of rosy picture. And uh, the Washington Post interviewed uh, did quite a little fairly combative interview with Colombia's Gustavo Petro, and they were sort of trying to take him to task for being a former guerrilla fighter, that kind of thing. And uh, he said, "You've got to understand, when we were coming up, um, we did not have examples of of." you know, electoral politics really being an option for us. We came about through, you know, witnessing what happened in in Chile with the coup. And uh, really, it wasn't arguably till Chavez arrived that the idea of of winning at the ballot box and not having a, a, you know, permanent interference, although we know that was some interference, obviously, with with the with the short coup, um, it, it wasn't really seen as possible. So so Chavez in some ways sort of paved the way for showing that a peaceful transition and peaceful change could be could be possible. And then as you know, we saw um as Christina Kirshner said in the film, you finally saw leaders who looked uh, like their people, be it a union leader in Brazil or a soldier in Venezuela, or you had a, a Lugo in Paraguay or Pepe in Uruguay, and you finally had, you know, a, a region that that represented the majority of the people. Um, so, as you know. Uh, uh, po- poverty in the region massively decreased in that period when when Chavez and and the progressive leaders were in in government. Uh, it went down, I think, from the 2003 to 13 period, from 43 to 23 uh, percent was the was the decrease in poverty after uh, two decades of increases. Um, and as as Alex touched on, you know, all sorts of regional institutions were either built or solidified uh, under Chavez. So things like uh, the Bank of the South and Silac and Unasur and um, as Alex touched on with with aid to Haiti, um, Chavez was also uh, behind, you know, tens of billions of dollars of of 
of aid to various progressive governments in the region. Um, we've obviously seen some uh, depressing changes since then. We've seen, aside from sudden deaths of certain leaders, we've seen impeachments and coups and the use of lawfare in the region um, through using the law for, for nefarious political means and, and as a way of using the law to oust certain leaders uh, under the guise of corruption investigations and that sort of thing. Um, uh, Lula talks about US interference that Chavez had warned him about. He talks about this in Oliver Stone's upcoming documentary on Lula's imprisonment and then his release. That should be out uh, some point this coming year. Um, but I think I would just like to touch, as I mentioned, on the on this sort of spirit of unity that came about, that Chavez helped, you know, really lead. And this the spirit of the second independence of Latin America. Um, if you haven't seen South of the Border, it's online. Oliver also went back and did a follow-up uh, film with him called uh, My Friend Hugo, where we got a lot of backlash in the press saying that Oliver had been too friendly with Hugo Chavez and didn't ask him enough tough questions. So he went back and, and asked him a bunch of questions that the media said we, we should have put to him. Um, and as I mentioned, in the new year, there'll be a film where Lula reflects, reflects on some of uh, Chavez's warnings. Um, so I think those are the, the main the main points I'd like to make. And just, you know, thank you all for, for being here amidst this horrible, this horrible time. And thank you for the solidarity work you do. And I look forward to the discussion. Thank you, Susie, and thanks for all you do through both VSC, the Venezuela Solidarity Campaign, and your work uh, co-producing those films. So we're on to our final speaker before we move on to our round of, round of questions. And our final speaker is Matt Wilbrest of Labour Outlook. He's been active with Venezuela Solidarity and the Latin American progressive governments for quite some time. And is a leading figure in that in those movements in Britain. So it's a real privilege to have Matt with us. Matt. Thanks, Logan. And I'll forgive you for making me sound so old in your introduction. Um, as I was said, it's Hugo Chavez now died over 10 years ago, but his legacy lives on. And that's what we are here to celebrate and discuss today. In addition, I think hopefully to also energising ourselves in solidarity with forces in Latin America and beyond fighting against US domination and our failed economic system. Why then, in my opinion, does Chavez matter? As others have noted, his election sparked the first so-called pink tide and led to a new, still continuing and important discussion on what socialism means in the 21st century across the global left. That's a discussion which just touched so many people in Latin America and beyond um, people like Lula that Susan mentioned, but so many activists all over the world had that as a reference point after a period of basically no one really talking about socialism or socialist change for at least a decade following the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, and as his precedent developed, as others have mentioned, he undertook to make the changes needed to make Venezuela a genuinely independent nation. And that meant most of all, I think, taking control of natural resources, ensuring the process of change was led by the mass of people. Um, and that's very well illustrated in the scenes around the 2002 coup attempt that Alex spoke about and in the film The Revolution Will Not Be Televised, which people should watch if you haven't on that. And also, of course, part of this was that people were freed from illiteracy in order to enable them to drive this change, similar to what happened with the revolution in Cuba. In As others have mentioned, so I won't go into it in as much detail as my notes, he also led the transformation of Venezuela by lifting 
millions from poverty, standing against social exclusion, marginalisation and the institutional repression so great in Venezuela prior to Chavez's election. In terms of today's discussion, we've also noticed how Chavez played the leading role in the transformation of Latin America as a continent, where in the 21st century, in different ways and through different routes, many movements have been attempting and are still attempting to build a better world. We are seeing the second wave of what has been termed the pink tide. This process has ebbs and flows, and I know that people active on it can find it quite demoralising when we have the ebbs rather than the flows. But it is a process that's continuing and has achieved so much for millions of people. And um, if you look, for example, in Honduras, someone else mentioned the coup in Honduras and how um, Honduras was going to join ALBA. If you look at the struggle of those people who then overturned that coup a decade later, it really does show that this process has so many triumphs and so many things we can take inspiration from. In terms of Chavez, then, I think one of the key lessons we can take that is relevant today is that for our discussion here on the left is that you can't be a socialist without internationalism and without anti-imperialism. This isn't just a sloganising point, although it is a good sloganising point. It is because of the nature of the actual global economic system we live in. As Che Guevara put it many decades ago, we must bear in mind that imperialism is a world system, the last stage of capitalism, and it must be defeated in a world confrontation. The strategic end of this struggle should be the destruction of imperialism. Our share, the responsibility of the exploited and underdeveloped of the world, is to eliminate the foundations of imperialism. Our oppressed nations, from where they extract capital, raw materials, technicians and cheap labour, and to which they export new capital as instruments of domination, arms and all kinds of articles, thus submerging us into an absolute dependence. And if you look at the world today, the debt crisis, which is finally getting some coverage in progressive circles, the environmental crisis, and how the global south will be expected to pay for that. We see how relevant Che's words today. And like Che, in a different time and context, of course, I think we can say that Hugo Chavez advances anti-imperialism, both in practice and in theory. Also, as the publicity for this event emphasised, and Alex went into some detail on, it's important to note that Chavez also believed that just as you couldn't have real socialist change without internationalism, you couldn't have real socialist change without democracy, and real direct democracy at that. As Chavez said, the way to save the world is through socialism, but socialism that extend, exists within a democracy, which is also why in an interview with Al Jazeera, he explained that in his view, what had fallen in the Soviet Union was not socialism. It was a society that moved far away from the original aim of Lenin and Trotsky. Um, and this democratic element to Chavez's socialism, and it's basing, I think, also on mass social movements, including in urban areas and amongst oppressed sections of the population, such as the Afro-Venezuelan population, I think was what gave it such an appeal to the left around the world, including here in Britain, obviously, where he came to visit the then mayor of London, Ken Livingston, but also in places like um, Mélenchon's movement in Spain, the Syriza movement in Greece. People were able to relate to this mass movement in a way that perhaps other self-styled socialist movements in the past or self-termed socialist movements they weren't able to relate to. Um, on this point, Chavez also believed that as well as being profoundly democratic, socialist change had to be uninterrupted and international, saying controversially to some of his followers and perhaps to some of our viewers as well, that Trotsky said that the revolution was permanent, it never finishes, let's go with that. And what he meant was that the change had to continue at all points. It was about renovating, renewing, and democratising that change at every stage. These points, I think, explain the work that Alex mentioned, that 
happened in Venezuela and Chavez in advancing the importance of the concept of the commune and direct democracy and also other ideas that he sort of touched on and it would have been obviously he was running the country but it would have been interesting if he'd been able to expand his written ideas more in areas like workers control in industry and self-management of land and of course also expressed as others have gone into much more detail on so I don't need to his explicit support for other socialist and anti-imperialist forces around the world opposing the wars in Afghanistan, Iraq and Libya. I think linked to this, Chavez also took on a very important theme from Che Guevara's writings and others in saying that to progress real change, to really break from the domination of empire and to really start building a new society, you can't outsource stages or elements of that struggle. The mass of the people have to make that change ourselves and ultimately that has to be an anti-capitalist change. To conclude, it remain, it's 25 years on from Chavez's election, but it remains absolutely key for us to oppose US intervention in Venezuela, of course, in revolutionary Cuba and indeed all Latin American countries. And let us honour Chavez by building a better socialist world today. Viva Chavez. Thank you, Matt. And thank you to all of our speakers. I hope the audience shares my opinion. Those have been some really tremendous uh, introductions and some really in-depth overviews there of Chavez's work and life. We've had lots and lots of amazing questions come through. Hopefully we'll get through as many as we can. So our first one is from Gary Griffiths uh, saying, bearing in mind the sanctions on Venezuela has its internationalism been curtailed. We've also got one from YouTube asking uh, what can be learned by the left internationally from the way that Chavez's polit political project linked social movements and unions with electoral work. We have a good question from Karen. How can we challenge the narrative, which Karen highlights is quite prevalent amongst academics, that progressive governments started off well but don't work? The claim is often made by right-wing figures in the press. How can we counteract that? We've got one from Hillary asking about the most recent election in Argentina, saying, has the pink tide been reversed with the recent election of extreme right-winger Trumpist Fatra Meyer in Argentina? How much is that due to the economic collapse caused by multinationals suing in the International Econ Economic Court? And one which maybe Matt would like to take is, would Keir Starman and Labour leadership support calls to release the Venezuelan sanctions, or is it more important... Uh, for the current Labour Party leadership to support US foreign policy. If you want to answer as a few of those at once, then feel free. Susie. Yeah, I mean, I'll touch a bit on the on the the narrative one, which is obviously a tricky one. Um, you know, the narrative around the progressive governments of the global south. You know, it was started off well, but then went a bit wrong. Well, I would I would say, I mean, I'm sure, uh, Karen, you, you know, um, you know this. Uh, I don't know if you are an academic, but you know this better than I. That we've seen the tide changing again um, in Colombia and Brazil and other regions, and so I don't think the story's been been fully told. Um, so that's that's one thing. I think the stats also speak for themselves. I mean, certainly when we were making that film. Venezuela and Chavez were highly demonized and what we were trying to do is to tell the counter narrative and so I think um, sort of 
I think the work, you know, organizations like CEPA do um, around the impact of the sanctions and things like that has has been huge. But it but I think I think the story is starting to turn again. And I so I think uh, you know, we've got to keep looking at what's happening and 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 the good the good developments as well as what's obviously been happening all around the world with these sort of Trumpian figures. Um, from Argentina and the Netherlands recently and all the rest. So I think that's the question I'm going to touch on a little bit. Uh, who would like to go next? If Alex, you'd like to jump in on some of these? No, these are all really excellent questions. Um, I'll start maybe with Gary's on whether um, Venezuela's internationalism has been curtailed um, and uh, you know, considering the impact of the sanctions. And yeah, I would say very much so. I mean, there are a number of factors. Um, you know, one is that the region has also changed. Um, and certainly during some of the critical years of Maduro, um, much of the region shifted to the right and became extremely hostile to Venezuela. And um, so you know, one project that went into hibernation, for instance, was UNASUR, and now there are big efforts uh, to to bring it back, um, being led uh, by some of my colleagues, among others. You can look at the work of Guillaume Long, who's uh, been analyzing the viability of UNASUR uh, going forward and bringing it back. Um, and, and other projects like ALBA and so on have foundered a bit as some of the key countries that were part of it. Um, you know, ALBA, Ecuador was very important within ALBA. And of course, Ecuador has swung um, very far to the right um, and is also among the countries that are very hostile to Venezuela. So so this is one thing as sort of a geopolitical context where there are just less partners for Venezuela to work with. Um but certainly, uh, the sanctions have, have yeah, undermined um, a lot of the big regional projects. I mean, starting with Petro Caribe, right? Uh, Venezuela's oil production went from over 2 million barrels per day, um, you know, before uh, some of the broad economic sanctions were imposed. Uh, and it dropped to something like 200,000 barrels per day. And you've got to consider that this is, you know, the oil revenue is 90% of Venezuela's uh, well um, overall national income. Uh, so, you know, this has been absolutely devastating to Venezuela and to, um, of course, all of its big regional projects in which um, oil and oil revenue played such a big role. Um, and, yeah, and then the other thing is that uh, Maduro has been very much beleaguered. I mean, he's dealt with um, an extremely hostile internal situation. Basically, from the moment he was elected, he was elected on a very thin margin in 2013 following Chavez's death. And uh, those elections were contested violently by the Venezuelan opposition. Um, later, um, the PSUV... Uh, the the ruling party won, um, you know, by a vast margin in regional elections, things seemed to be improving. And then suddenly you had violent protests again that were launched at the beginning of 2014. And it's been sort of on and on like this, where, um, you know, the main opposition actors never recognized the legitimacy of the government or tried to coexist with it. And, and so that's, I think, forced the Maduro government to turn very much inward in dealing with 
um, you know, this highly volatile and difficult internal situation. So, so yeah, the, the internationalism is certainly not um, as potent as it was, um, you know, in, in, in Chavez's time. Uh, but that could be turned around. I mean, for one thing, if the sanctions are lifted and they've been lifted just a little bit, certainly not anywhere near enough, but it's allowed for the economy to recover a little bit um, and uh, far more is needed. And um, and then Venezuela can sort of pursue a more international agenda again. And then, yeah, on the question of the narrative, I mean, I agree with what um, Susie was saying. I think it's important to point out that in most cases, these progressive governments um, did very well. Um, their record is very good. You're never going to see that in the financial press. They don't talk about it. We have reports about it. You can look at the macroeconomic data. You can look at the social and economic indicators. It's good. It's positive. And in many cases, the situ, you know, the right comes into power uh, through sort of extra constitutional means. Um, or because you basic, basically have turncoats, as was the case in Ecuador. Ecuador is a remarkably successful, um, you know, story of uh, what was accomplished through very progressive economic and social policies under Rafael Correa during 10 years. We have a paper about that. Um, and uh, his successor, who was supposed to be an ally, turned against him and then proceeded to engage in lawfare, forcing Rafael Correa into exile um, and leading to the jailing and exile of, of other leaders of, of the progressive movement in Ecuador. So you have a number of cases like that. Of course, Honduras, there was a coup. Uh, so, you know, basically, most of these uh, countries were doing quite well and uh and and, ha and have strong records so the narrative is just it you know it's easy to disprove and then you have cases of course like venezuela uh that's been hammered with absolutely crippling sanctions there's there's no way you can talk about the state of venezuela and its economy without taking into consideration those sanctions that's such a huge part of the story uh, so I think it's it's easy to challenge that narrative. Um, and at CEPR, we try to provide some of the tools to do that by just looking at the data, looking at the facts about uh, some of these governments. Thank you, Alex. Matt? Thanks, Hogan. Um, yeah, uh, well, I guess this Starmer question is probably best started. Obviously, Keir Starmer's not be some friend of anti-imperialist movements in uh, Latin America. I think that's become obvious. Um, I remember speaking at a meeting during the when Starmer was running for lead and saying that I thought he was going to be worse than Blair and everyone thought I was a complete ultra-left maniac, but I think I might have been onto something, <laughs> to be honest. Um, but I do think that with the US shifting its position, um, as Alex meant on, even partially, then that if the UK government was to change and the leadership of the Labour Party currently is so slavish and it's following the Biden's sort of international agenda. I think it does give opportunities to ask, for example, why is the UK not returning the gold when Portugal is returning the gold and the US is easing sanctions? It also, I think, does for campaigning work just give a new opportunity, a change of government is a new focus, a new target, something you can make demands on that perhaps you can't make on a conservative government. Um, so I think it's something that we need to be thinking about and doing on, on Latin American 
policy questions more generally as well, not just Venezuela. Um, on the question about sort of unions, social movements and electoral work, um, I had the privilege to go to Venezuela a lot of times, but only in a very short period, I think, maybe in the last three or four years before Chavez passed away. But what I noticed with the electoral sort of mobilisations for local and regional things when I was there was it wasn't like an election campaign here. It wasn't like get the vote out, go knock on a door. It was much more linked into the idea of a social movement, you know, schools on every corner, loudspeakers here, there and everywhere, colourful marches representing, you know, like real rainbow coalition of type forces, certainly when I was there. And I think that's, well, I was trying to touch on that a bit by the nature of those massive movements. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why these struggles in Latin America like come back after they face defeats, like Susie works sometimes on over the MST in Brazil, like one of the probably the biggest social movement in the world. But, you know, in countries like Brazil or the big unions in Argentina or some of these organisations in Cuba, you know, things like Committee to Defend Revolution, they aren't going anywhere. And that provides a basis, but also I think maybe like a historical memory to say that you can have further struggles. And I suppose in like the question about Argentina and reversing things, um, someone, I think Ian Drummond has posted a good comment on that in the chat. But I think that... Um, in Brazil, I remember we did some campaigning against the coup in Brazil that removed Dilma, and we had a meeting, and it was like people were quite depressed and resistance didn't seem that high, and so on. And then um, after Bolsonaro got in, then at some point in it, the resistance seemed to intensify quite dramatically, and obviously now it's a better situation there. So I think you can't rule out, especially in a country that seems politically and economically volatile as Argentina, big struggles and big changes. So I suppose I'm not an expert on Argentina at all, but that's what I would say. And um, the other thing I thought just worth a quick mention on internationalism and the discussion is um, Petro Caribe, which is something that Chavez founded, but has literally probably made a difference to the livelihoods of people in so many different islands and nations too often are just ignored by imperialism or perhaps also too often ignored in our discussions on the left as well. Can I just say one more thing about Argentina, which because uh, there there was some good questions and um, you know in Argentina as 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 someone pointed out, um, sorry I've forgotten your name, but about Christina Kirchner, I mean yes, there, there's a very strong track record there as well. The economy did very well. Many many millions of people were lifted out of poverty. Um, you know inequality also um, was reduced. Uh, things were on a good track. And then uh, you had a right-wing government of Macri uh, that came into place. And and then one really awful external intervention, which came from the IMF, which on the one hand forced, uh, you know, very painful structural adjustment on the country. And on the other, um, they provided Macri with an unprecedented loan of $50 billion, clearly designed to prop him up. It was a political move to really try to prop him up. Unfortunately, Macri um, really didn't know what he was doing, poured all of that money into propping up the Argentine peso, and there was massive capital flight and something between 20 and $30 billion of that IMF money you know, disappeared through capital flight. Uh, it was an absolute disaster. And that's what um, you know the current government of Alberto Fernandez, the outgoing government, inherited a, a nearly impossible situation, a level of debt with the IMF that's absolutely unsustainable. And they've done their best to negotiate the best terms possible. They did really quite well, considering, but 
it's it's a crippling amount of debt. Um, it really could be considered to be illegal. It was absolutely irresponsible for the IMF to pour all of that money into Argentina that was then flushed down the toilet by the Macri government. Um, so what we're seeing today is not the failure of the left. It's really the failure of the right um, in partnership with, you know, one of the worst institutions uh, with the worst track records in Latin America, the International Monetary Fund. Thank you all for that first round. We've got six more minutes, so I'm keen to try and get through as many audience questions as we can because they are coming through thick and fast, and I think we can all agree they are pretty spectacular. So, first one from David, which is, although Venezuela has lost allies internationally, it has new ones in Colombia and Mexico. How important is this? And then... One on what can other nations in Latin America learn from the development model which Venezuela embraced under Chavez? We'll just take those two just because we've got six minutes and then we will wrap up. So if you want to do some final remarks in there, guys, as well, that'd be great. Very quickly on them. I think, yeah, obviously that's sort of the point I was making about Colombia and Mexico. It's not a sort of even process. It's not the case that all countries move to the left or right in um you in tandem and i think um david who asked that question knows a lot more about david Raby knows a lot more about mexico than me but uh, my understanding is it's hopeful that successor of amlo will be a progressive successor and that this dramatic shift in regional and foreign policy will continue and let's hope for that i think what's going on in colombia is fascinating i think obviously britain has one of the biggest sort of solidarity movements with the left in colombia around although it's very much a trade union focused um movement but if you've gone to those meetings over the years you would not expect at any time in the future for Colombia to have this progressive and uh, non-US dominated orientated government and there's some pretty inspirational stuff coming out of Colombia and I think people should keep an eye on that as much as we had and I think we should also keep an eye on places where things aren't going well but we should be offering solidarity so in terms of the question about Starmer government policy I think what's going on in Peru now for nearly a year is absolutely disgraceful the coup in Peru and the repression of the resistance there, and we should be looking at ways to put pressure on governments in the EU, UK, and elsewhere to stop, you know, subsidising and arming the Peruvian coup regime. Um, so it's also a case of solidarity with those movements struggling to, to reverse um, reactionary developments as well. Um, I'm just more generally, I think some of the ideas about socialism and things, these are things we do need to be talking about in the whole and, and on an ideas plane. So if people are in London, I would encourage them in February to come to the Rise in-person day school. It's not supposed to be a big rah-rah rally event with lots of union leaders, MPs, etc. It's supposed to be an in-depth discussion on elements of social ideas. We've got an amazing panel on Palestine in particular. I draw people's attention to, and there will be guests from Latin America there. So that's in the chat. Please put that in your diary. Um, and, of course, the annual Latin American conference in January is always a good thing to get to as well. So I sort of conclude by saying, I don't think you can say there was a development model, in my opinion, in Venezuela, because obviously it's an oil fairly oil-rich nation, a very specific time. But I think the idea that the way you advance national liberation and national self-determination is also for advancing, breaking from the control of capital, is something that I think has relevance all over the world. Thank you, Matt. Alex? Uh, yeah, well, just quickly, uh, in response to David Raby, and hello, David, it's great to have you here. It's, it's absolutely true that we're in a new period worth you know, more 
left-wing governments in power again, um, particularly Colombia, where, of course, it's completely unprecedented. It's never happened before. You have an ex-guerrillero who's been elected president there. It's pretty amazing stuff. Um, and, and then Lula's return in Brazil, and I would say Lula, who's much more assertive on the international front, um, much more willing to take on uh, the U.S. Um, in a number of areas, I think, which may have something to do with the U.S. having played a role in his jailing through their influence over the Lava Jato car wash uh, operation in Brazil. Um, that's a whole other thing we could talk about. But um, I think that's been really important in terms of the little that um, the Biden administration has done that's positive, the the little bit of lifting of sanctions that they've done. Both of those governments have exercised a lot of pressure. Um, in terms of, you know, if that can bring back some of the internationalism that we saw before, I think I think it has to a certain extent with Brazil, for instance, um, trying to sort of revive UNASUR and so on. But I think, you know, one one key difference is that you don't have governments with and this this is important, you know, in these liberal democracies, you don't have governments with such strong uh, majorities in the legislatures, right? That's certainly the case in Colombia and Petro, where he's dealing with, you know, a right-wing majority in the Congress. And so he's dealing with a different situation. He's not, I think, able to engage as effectively internationally because he's just held back by so much inter internal opposition. And of course, the media in Colombia is its own a very uh, strong opposition against any kind of left-wing movement. So I, I think, yeah, I think it's it's very pos positive. It's it's also very tenuous. And I think, you know, we have to be looking out both in Colombia and Brazil for the future of those governments because, um, you know, there are some very hostile forces. Bolsonarismo is still very much um, a force to be contended with in Brazil, a very dangerous force. And in Colombia, you've got crazy paramilitaries, um, among other things, and, and an ultra-conservative elite uh, that is bent at anything to remove Petro. So I think, you know, to help Venezuela, um, it's important to sort of help all these other countries in the region and to be on the lookout, including, as Matt mentioned, in Peru, uh, which uh, is has gone through hell since um you know uh since castillo was removed in jail uh so i think you know what's most effective in latin america in terms of the survival of progressive governments is this unity is this solidarity is this working together um and so i think um any effective solidarity movement has to think in those terms that it's not just one country it's a number of countries that you have to look at and you have to uh, provide any support you can to the progressive movements there because there's a permanent war against them, frankly. Yeah, beautifully said by Matt and Alex. I don't think I can add much more to that other than just remaining um, vigilant for more sort of lawfare nonsense, which I'm sure will try to be used in, in all parts of Latin America and, and other parts of the world. Um, thanks, Matt, for, for mentioning the Arise uh, Festival coming up in February. I mean, I'm curious... Um, you know, given the horrors that are going on right now, if we're going to see more 
people radicalized and to get more involved in international solidarity work um, from from all walks of life. It remains to be seen. Um, and um, yeah, and I would, as I'm sure many of you doing, follow SIPA, follow all the groups listed here, follow the landless movement in Brazil, MST, Jean Pedro Stedileres on Twitter. Um, the documentary about Lula, as I mentioned, will be out this in 2024, talking about uh, the car wash operation and the use of lawfare and U.S. interference. Um, and just grateful to all of you who who are involved in internationalism and solidarity work. So thank you. Thank you, Susie. And thanks to all of our speakers. And thank you for everyone for taking part this evening. Uh, if you can, you know, please do try and help offer us a, a donation no matter how small or no matter, no matter how large to try and help us be able to put on more events like this because I'm, I'm I'm amazed at how amazing how amazing our speakers were and so, so it's I'm hoping that you guys are as well so that we can keep putting on these fantastic events we do have one coming up in January on Rosa Luxemburg and her legacy uh, which will be online as well which I'm, has been shared in the chat so hopefully we'll see a few more of you there just want to finish by saying for many of us active in solidarity with Latin America and it's left over the years, today's discussion, I think, has been a confirmation of our need to, again, step up this work. I think they're playing a leading role in the development of a progressive future and both socially and internationally. And it's up to us to try and step up that work. We have to build those links with the left and the progressive movements there. And we do need to be talking explicitly about socialist ideals and building movements against capitalism and imperialism and for a better world. And you can hopefully join us in doing that by supporting the work of BSC, the Venezuela Solidarity Campaign, Labour Friends of Progressive Latin America, attending January's Latin America conference, which the letter came through again today, which I think will look looks a fantastic lineup. And please support the work of us at Labour Outlet, both on Twitter and Facebook, reading our daily updates. And please, if we can, let's see it, hopefully see a few more of you at the Arise Day School in February. I'll leave it there. Thank you for an amazing evening. Again, thank you to our amazing speakers who've really been fantastic. Have a lovely evening, all.